This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of a Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, the Tom Hartman Program, Truth Dig Radio, The Bugle, The Rachel Maddow Show, La Show, Activism from the ACLU, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. Good evening from New York. I'm Chris Hayes. After five years of work and a long battle over declassification, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence today finally released its extensive report on the CIA's detention and interrogation program in the early 2000s, and it is damning indeed. The heavily redacted 500-page executive summary of the committee's findings represents this country's first official reckoning with the torture regime operated by the U.S. from 2001 to 2009. And it shows that torture carried out by the CIA was far more brutal, far more widespread, and on far shakier legal ground than the agency had previously represented. That the torture program was ineffective, destroying the single key rationale for implementing it in the first place, and that the CIA willfully misled media outlets, lawmakers, national security officials, and the White House about both the extent of the program and its effectiveness. The Senate report is rife with chilling details about how the CIA treated the 119 known detainees who passed through its custody. We learned the CIA officers made threats to sexually abuse the mother of a detainee and a threat to cut a detainee's mother's throat. We learned that a high-profile detainee, Abu Zubaydah, lost his left eye while in CIA custody. We learned that two detainees were subjected to stress positions, including being shackled in a standing position for extended periods of time with broken bones in their feet. We learned that one CIA officer played Russian roulette with a detainee, while another threatened a detainee with a gun and a power drill. We learned at least five detainees were subjected to so-called rectal rehydration, or feeding through the rectum with no medical necessity, including one whose lunch tray, consisting of hummus, pasta with sauce, nuts and raisins, was pureed and rectally infused. And we learned that a CIA officer whose decisions appear to have contributed to a detainee's death, likely from hypothermia, after forcing him to sit on a bare concrete floor without pants, was later given a cash award of $2,500 for his, quote, consistently superior work. Besides the astounding brutality, the Senate report shows the CIA torture program was consistently plagued by mismanagement and rank incompetence. At one point, two detainees taken into CIA custody were subjected to sleep deprivation and dietary manipulation until the CIA confirmed that those two men had in fact been trying to contact the agency for weeks to inform the agency of what they believed were pending attacks. In other words, we tortured people who were trying to help us. Perhaps most disturbingly, at least a year into the program, the CIA, quote, made the unsettling discovery, you're holding a number of detainees about whom we know very little. Turns out, according to the report, 26 of the 119 detainees, 22%, did not meet the legal standard for detention and should not have even been there in the first place, including one man described as, quote, intellectually challenged, whose taped crying was used as leverage against a family member. Above all, the report seeks to debunk the torture program's entire reason for being and legal rationale, the idea that torture produced intelligence that led directly to the disruption of threats against Americans. The report goes point by point through the CIA's most cited examples of actionable intelligence obtained through torture and dismantles them using the agency's own documentation of what actually happened. That includes the most famous example of all the, of all, the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Despite CIA claims to Congress, the agency would not have found bin Laden without the torture program. 
a narrative enshrined in the movie Zero Dark Thirty. The report found the majority of accurate intelligence leading to bin Laden came from sources outside the CIA program. And, quote, the most accurate information acquired from a CIA detainee was provided prior to the CIA subjecting the detainee to enhanced interrogation techniques. Senate Intelligence Chair Dianne Feinstein, who spearheaded the report and fought for its release, spoke on the Senate floor today about its importance. History will judge us by our commitment to a just society governed by law and the willingness to face an ugly truth and say never again. Vice President Joe Biden applauded the report's release today. I think it's a badge of honor. Every country, every country has engaged in activities somewhere along the line that it has not been proud of. But think about it. Name me another country that's prepared to stand up and say, this was a mistake. We should not have done what we've done, and we will not do it again. This is the New York Times' Peter Baker reports. An administration official said the White House won't take sides between the CIA and the Senate over whether the interrogations worked. Senator John McCain, himself a survivor of torture while held captive in Vietnam, mounted a stirring defense of the report's release from the Senate floor. I know from personal experience that the abuse of prisoners will produce more bad than good intelligence. Most of all, I know the use of torture compromises that which most distinguishes us from our enemies. Our belief that all people, even captured enemies, possess basic human rights which are protected by international conventions the United States not only joined, but for the most part authored. Whenever I hear a conservative say words to the effect of, by releasing this torture report, we are putting American lives at risk. My answer is no. By torturing people, we put American lives at risk. By releasing the torture report, we're actually reducing the risk to American lives because we're asserting to the world that we don't do that anymore, that that was an aberration. Here, Andrea Tanteros uh, went off on, on a screed about this on Fox News uh, yesterday, I believe it was. And here's a couple clips I'd like to, to essentially respond to. Here's the first one. The United States of America is awesome. We are awesome. But we've had this discussion. We've closed the book on it and we've stopped doing it. And the reason they want to have this discussion is not to show how awesome we are. This administration wants to have this discussion to show us how we're not awesome. Right. So the question, I, you know, I think that we're incredibly awesome. I'm, you know, I'm uh, an unabashed American patriot i would say i you know i i believe in my country i believe in the in the founding ideals of my country i'm proud of my country in many ways there are many things about this country that i'm embarrassed about many things that i think we could do so much better 
you know, our gun violence, for example, is, you know, not an example for the world. Our incarceration rates, not an example for the world. Our childhood poverty, not an example for the world. But on the other hand, the founding principles of this country continue to animate our conversations. In fact, they animate this conversation. And I'm curious, you know, what do you think America is awesome? It's easy for us to sit around and complain. But what are the things that actually make America awesome? Because, you know, I agree with the first half of what Andrea said. We're an awesome country, but, you know, it doesn't mean that we're number one at anything in particular other than incarceration. But, you know, it's a, it's a hell of a lot better place to live than a lot of places where I have lived and worked around the world. But the second one where she says, you know, they, they, you know, we close the book on this. We don't need to have this conversation. No, we, we do need to have this conversation. And she's right. It, it, what she, what she was trying to say was Democrats are releasing this report because the Republicans are going to take control of the, of the Senate and they will never let it come out because it looks bad for Bush. And the Democrats don't care if it looks bad for Bush. In fact, that's kind of a bonus. Well, true. Is that the Democrats' fault? No, that's Bush's fault. Okay, here's the second clip from Andrew. This administration is doing this because they're the same administration that goes on these apology tours because they believe naively that if we can just shame ourselves and convince the world how horrible we are and put us on a moral equivalency with all these other countries, then maybe they will stop beheading Americans and putting our heads on sticks. Now, that is one of the most stupid things I've ever heard. I don't know how to say it beyond that. I just did to the fundamental logic. First of all, apology tours. There, it, it, there is no such thing. This, this is an entirely Fox News, you know, created meme. So just you know, set that. I, this is this is this this is the tragedy of 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 siloed information. But beyond that, the idea that that. By apologizing for committing crimes, we are reducing ourselves to the level of of a country that tortures or a group like ISIS that cuts people's heads off is, as I said, stupid. I mean, it's the exact opposite of reality. The person who stands up and says, yes, I did that and I'm sorry. Yes, I did that and I want to atone for it. Yes, I did that and I wanted to fix this. That person earns our respect. Even Republicans. I mean, David Vitter gets busted for for sleeping with hookers here in Washington, D.C. And he stands up in front of the world with his wife by his side and says, yes, I did it, and I'm very sorry. He gets a standing ovation from his Republican colleagues when he comes back into the Senate, and he gets reelected by the citizens of Louisiana. We love people who acknowledge their errors and, and say anyway that they're going to change their ways. And the world does too. This is a human nature characteristic. So to say that acknowledging our mistakes so that we can become a better nation somehow makes us a worse nation? That's unpatriotic. It's not just stupid. It's unpatriotic. It is fundamentally un-American. It is not how any patriot would behave, in my humble opinion. How any, any president, historically, by and large, with the possible exception of Richard Nixon, 
or Ronald Reagan has behaved. Although Reagan had an oops moment, right? When the, when the barracks was blown up in Lebanon and over 200 Marines died. Reagan didn't say, I'm going to have a war on those terrorists. No, he just pulled everybody out of Lebanon. Case closed. Oops. Shouldn't have had him there. So learning from your mistakes is one of the things that makes America awesome. Something you've written about on informed comment, and, and I should say for those just joining us, we're speaking with Juan Cole. This is Truth Dig Radio. Something you've written about is the um, involvement of Middle Eastern countries, in particular Egypt, in this torture and uh, their reaction. Now, tell us about that. Well, uh, before this program began, uh, where the CIA was itself torturing people uh, and sort of took the gloves off, uh, because this is illegal in, in, in U.S. law, and in the 90s, I think it's fair to say that no CIA field officer would dream of being involved in anything like this, uh, partially for fear of prosecution. Uh, before uh, the, the U.S. started doing this itself, uh, it used to farm out the, the, the tor- torture to uh, right-wing dictatorships with which the U.S. is allied. And so uh, we know uh, that uh, al-Qaeda detainees were sent to Egypt, for instance, uh, for interrogation, uh, Jordan, uh, and so forth. And uh, and so the Egyptian secret police, who torture routinely and continue to torture today, would, would torture these people and then pass on the information gathered. Uh, and uh, that was one of the ways the U.S. got snookered into the Iraq War, was that uh, one of the Egyptian detainees, um, Khalid, uh, uh, Ibn Sheikh Libi, alleged that Saddam Hussein was training al-Qaeda in chemical weapons use at Salman Pak. And uh, this was not true. Uh, presumably, uh, Ibn Sheikh Libi said it to avoid being tortured further, or to take revenge on his torturers by, by leading them down uh, a primrose path. But this got into the speeches of Condi Rice and, and so forth in, in fall of, of 2002. Uh, so the, the, one of the pretexts on which the U.S. went to war against Iraq uh, was based upon false uh, statements gathered under torture by the Egyptian secret police. We continue to war with uh, people in the Middle East with groups like ISIS, and I wonder what kind of blowback we can expect from this knowledge, this confirmation, as we saw with Abu Ghraib when that uh, came out, that the United States did in fact torture people in horrible ways, a lot of whom we should say turned out to be innocent and wrongfully held. Yes, uh, well, uh, 21% of the CIA detainees were there because... uh, uh, they were mistakenly arrested. They they had a name similar to the one that the CIA was looking for, or something. But um, no, you know, I, I don't. I, I I keep hearing this all week on the American press and the mass media. And they're throwing up big uh, 
big uh, sign saying, you know, awaiting reaction in the Middle East. And I followed the Middle Eastern press in Arabic, and I've, I've looked, and I can't find any reaction. Really? Uh, no, they're not. That's so interesting. Over there. There's no demonstrations that I can tell. Why do you think uh, that is? Well, it's just not surprising to them. It's not news. It's not news. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, I mean, after Abu Ghraib, they, they just don't, that, they think that's how we are. Uh, Cy Hirsch says they think we're perverts. Uh, and, um, you know, it's also, uh, I mean, it's complicated because you take a place like Egypt, uh, they're having their own government's war on terror, and uh, al-Qaeda types are being rounded up in Egypt and tortured uh, as we speak. Uh, and um, the Egyptian public, probably on, on the whole and for the most part, you know, doesn't have a big problem with that. Um, so we, we one forgets in the American media context that Al-Qaeda, not popular in most of the Middle East, uh, and indeed seen as a threat in places like Egypt. And it's gotten to the point in Egypt where there's this kind of, of nationalist, it's not really secular because people, you know, they're religious, they go to mosques and so forth, but it's a nationalist backlash against political Islam, so that it's a little uncomfortable to wear a beard in Egypt at the moment. So you come to the Egyptians and say, you know, 10 years ago the U.S. tortured al-Qaeda types. First of all, well, you know, the U.S. is known to do these kinds of things. Second of all, they were al-Qaeda types. I, yeah, I, I can't see any, any particular reaction. Of course, the reaction would come among the small fringe, the tiny fringe, uh, that are, you know, identified al-Qaeda. Um, but then they are already trying to blow us up, and uh, I don't think, you know, they needed more impetus uh so it's it's just not not a not a news story in the middle east it's not it's whatever your television is telling you about uh about the situation as far as i can tell is disconnected from uh the regional reality and it's a case of is more or less the united states can't look any worse than it already does well, as I said, I think it's complicated. First of all, this is a 400-some page report in English. Uh, there are no pictures. Uh, it's not very visceral. Uh, the case, the 20 case studies are, are disgusting, but the Arab public, you know, most of them live under secret police, and uh, it's not that they don't know this kind of thing goes on. Uh, so I think it, it's just distant mm -hmm. from them in in many ways it's not it's not in their face and i think most of them don't identify with the kinds of people that were being tortured uh and um they don't you know have the american public's disappointment uh uh at least in some quarters that the us would behave in this way they expected to so it's just i i don't i don't actually understand that meme and i, I to tell you the truth peter i think it's just completely uh, a Republican Party talking points. They sat down in a room and said, well, how could we blunt the impact of the release of this report, which makes the Republican Party, since that was the party in power at the time, look bad? And they said, well, we'll say that it's a threat to national security because it will set off the crazies in the Middle East. And I think they just made it up out of thin air. I mean, I, I just don't see any evidence that their talking point has any validity.
Squarespace is a wonderful online platform that lets anyone build professional websites and online portfolios. So you'd think that with such a specific service, you know, website building, that their target customer would have to be someone who has an interest in having a website. Well, I am contending that that is not the case. And I know it may be counterintuitive, but I think that their target customer also includes people who have no interest in having a website at all. The reason? Well, if you're one of those people who has no interest in building a website, then I dare you to visit squarespace.com, take the tour, maybe watch the video introduction for the new Squarespace 7, check out some of the customer story videos, and just see if you come away not wanting one yourself. Squarespace websites, so beautiful and functional that even people who don't want a website will want a website. If you want to dive deeper than just the previews, you can for free with a 14-day trial, no credit card necessary. Then when you're ready to make the move permanent, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT at checkout. That's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase and also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. It's the all-in-one platform, makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with 20 highly customizable Here's an interesting quote from uh, from Cheney. He said this, um, uh, we've got, uh, talking about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who uh, was uh, formerly the number three ranked baddie in the whole of Al-Qaeda, which I think means uh, he was seeded to meet bin Laden in the semi-final. But um, <laughs> he, uh, we've got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's mastermind of 9-11, and he's in our possession. Yep. We know who's the architect. What are we supposed to do? Kiss him on both cheeks and say, please tell us what you know. Of course not. But surely that had to be worth a go. <laughs> If nothing else, just to confuse the lad. I don't like <laughs> Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at all. He's not my kind of guy. But I mean, a little peck on both cheeks. Who knows what he would say? Brennan's final and perhaps most desperate grasp for the moral high ground, the kind of desperate grasp that hypothetically a restrained detainee might try to make while water was being poured into his upturned nose, let's say. You know, a desperate, tragically futile grasp. Uh, Brennan's final grasp was saying, look, we did a lot of things right. And that in a very real sense, Andy, is not the f***ing point. Because <laughs> Charles Manson could say, hey, yeah, look, yes, I've conspired to commit several brutal murders and I shouldn't have done that, but let's not dismiss the fact that I made several outstanding omelettes in my lifetime. <laughs> Feta cheese, diced peppers, pancetta. Let the record show that I also know how to treat an egg. Okay? What do you mean? How can you just me by my entire body of work? Ah, oh, be putting pepper in an omelette. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's too strong a flavour, Manson. Too strong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, President Obama, who himself had admitted that uh, some methods amounted to torture, said that he hoped the publication of the report, uh, the publication which he himself thought, would help us leave these techniques where they belong in the past. But, but the problem with that level of comfort in that sentence uh, is that the past he's referring to is not the 1800s, it's just eight years ago. So it might need a little more attention than he's willing to give it. And unsurprisingly, the global reaction has not been overjoyed to this report, although many countries need to be very careful 
about how they choose to talk about this. Because let's be clear, there are a lot more countries than just America implicated in this report. It's, it's estimated that when you include nations that allowed rendition flights to land and take off in their countries, more than a quarter of the world's countries assisted the CIA in running its torture program. So that's a lot of people with blood, tears, sweat, urine and dead bodies on their hands. Even countries who are no strangers themselves to, let's say, tooting on the torture trombone, uh, <laughs> have been getting involved in reacting. China's state-run Xinhua news agency stated, perhaps the US government should clean up its own backyard first and respect the rights of other countries to resolve their issues by themselves. America is neither a suitable role model nor a qualified judge on human rights issues in other countries, including China. And look, that's... That's a tough pill to take from China and their particular human rights record, Andy, but that's the problem. Due to the contents of this report, it's a pill that the US is going to have to hold its nose and just swallow. In Russia, their state-run Channel 1 TV featured a reporter saying the Senate report makes people shudder and proved that detainees were tortured with an inquisitor's ingeniousness. And from a Russian state-run agency, Andy... <laughs> That almost sounds like a compliment. Sounds very Listen. much like a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, guys, we have to try harder. The truly incredible thing is how close all of this came to being a non-issue. Because the report also revealed that CIA officials considered closely taking a, com a very different path, specifically a system under which detainees would have had the same rights um, as people held in federal or military prisons inside the US with, with facilities like any standard supermax prison here. And critically, that any interrogations would have to be conducted uh, in accordance with the United States Army Field Manual, which, which explicitly prohibits coerced, painful questioning. So, so what happened to that reasonable plan? Andy, well, unfortunately it appears that Donald Rumsfeld happened to that plan, <laughs> and he is like a decapitated rat baked into a loaf of bread. He's a very unwelcome addition. Um, the, the former CIA general counsel, John A lot of empirical Rizzo. research went into that line as well, to be fair to John. <laughs> Uh, the former CIA General Counsel John Rizzo um, recalled in an interview that uh, Rumsfeld took military bases off the table, so we started looking around at what became the black sites. We brainstormed. Do we put them on ships? We considered a, des a deserted island. It was born out of necessity. It wasn't some diabolical plot. But look, that's the thing about diabolical plots, Andy. They never seem like diabolical <laughs> plots to the people who are diabolically plotting them at the time. <laughs> I'm sure that someone working on the Death Star once said, look, let's be clear, Darth Vader's negotiations with Alderaan were taken off the table, so we brainstormed, and we eventually landed on destroying it and everyone living on it with a super laser. It was born out of necessity, it wasn't some diabolical <laughs> plot. And it wasn't like, this is a really sad thing, it wasn't like the CIA did not have personnel options too. They already had a group of experts that specialised in techniques designed to build a rapport with detainees they were interviewing. Apparently, in interviews known as fireside chats, <laughs> they extracted information... <laughs> yes, yes. This puts yes, Roosevelt in a very, very different life. <laughs> he was trying to, he was trying to interrogate fits. the American people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They extracted information and determined whether it was reliable. Previous CIA experts believed that any coercive interrogation led to unreliable information. And even if that wasn't true, which it clearly is, seduction is a much more impressive skill. <laughs> it's like kissing on the face, Andy. 
Beating a confession out of someone is such a cliche. Seducing it out of them is a counter-terrorism counter technique no one would see coming. Just an interrogator walking into a room, dimming the lights, lighting a couple of candles, playing some soft music, and bringing out some chocolate-covered strawberries. <laughs> Maybe throwing in a shoulder rub just to ease that information out of them. Just <laughs> ease it out, Andy. Baby, you seduce me. There's a term uh, coined sometime in the last century called whataboutism, and it describes how the Soviet Union back in the day would respond to Western criticism of the communist system. The American president, for instance, would condemn the Soviets for imprisoning political dissidents in remote gulags and forcing them into slave labor. And Soviet leaders would say, yeah, well, what about Jim Crow? Or what about your illegal war in Vietnam? It was a useful rhetorical tactic to effectively change the subject from one offense to another. And the obvious response to Soviet whataboutism was the following. Yeah, Jim Crow is terrible, indefensible. Vietnam War is a debacle. Those things are true. It is also true you are putting political dissidents in prison, and that is also wrong. These things aren't mutually exclusive. The moral universe is not zero-sum. Well, this week, after the release of the Senate report on the CIA's torture program, we're being treated to a 21st century version of whataboutism from, of all people, conservatives and the Republican Party. When you say the torture carried out by the U.S. government is repugnant, they say, what about drones? In some sort of liberal, I don't know, confused world, droning is more humane than torturing someone or, or interrogating them aggressively. It's bizarre. To me, it seems completely insensible that slapping KSM is bad. But sending a Hellfire missile into her family's picnic and killing all the children and, you know, killing Granny and killing everyone is okay. All right, death by drone or waterboarding, which would you prefer? Can you explain how the president believes that it's un-American to use these techniques, but it was okay to ramp up the drone policy and basically thousands of people around the world, innocent civilians, were killed? <coughs> They aren't picking up prisoners anymore. What they do is when they when they identify a high value target, the target is droned. There's no there's no terrorist left to, to interrogate. What's the moral equivalency there? How do you have moral authority when innocent civilians are killed by drones? Now, the appropriate response to this new whataboutism is twofold. First, as a basic matter of both moral law and of both law and moral principle, killing enemies in combat is sometimes permissible. Torturing them, however, never is. The prohibition on torture is categorical. In the American criminal justice system, for example, we can sentence someone to death, even though obviously I oppose that. We cannot sentence them to be tortured, because torture occupies a special category of moral taboo. The second response to these latter-day whataboutists is more or less the same one I would suggest we give the Soviets. It's true. 
many aspects of this government's targeted killing program, maybe the entire thing, are morally odious and constitutionally suspect. They deserve criticism. Heck, they even deserve outrage, though I would note the people who devote outrage toward them tend to be the same people that devote outrage towards torture, like ACLU and Amnesty International, and not, well, Fox News. But that has no bearing whatsoever on whether it's okay to pour water down someone's nose until they foam at the mouth, to threaten to sexually abuse someone's mother, or to anally rape someone with a feeding tube. And only a moral idiot would fail to see that. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon, for all offenses against the United States. President Gerald Ford, a month after he took office, September 1974, announcing a full and unconditional pardon for the previous president of the United States, Richard Nixon, for his offenses against the United States. What Ford did there, that was a preemptive pardon. No charges had been brought against President Nixon. So what Ford did was name Nixon's actions as offenses against the United States. But then he basically said that the person who committed those offenses would be allowed to get away with them without prosecution. Gerald Ford basically said he did it. But because it wouldn't be good for the country if Nixon were prosecuted for what he did, he won't be prosecuted. My conscience tells me that only I, as president, have the constitutional power to firmly shut and seal this book. My conscience tells me it is my duty not merely to proclaim domestic tranquility, but to use every means that I have to ensure it. Pardon is not a denial that crimes were committed. A pardon is implicitly an acknowledgement that crimes were committed, even as the person is going to be allowed to escape formal judgment for having committed those crimes. In 1977, in his first full day in office, it was President Jimmy Carter who issued a blanket pardon to men who had dodged the draft to avoid serving in Vietnam. Jimmy Carter didn't say that evading the draft wasn't a crime. He said it would be in the nation's interest if men who committed that crime would not be prosecuted for it. And so they won't. A blanket pardon for more than 200,000 Americans who'd violated the Military Selective Service Act. In 1974, it was Nixon doing the pardoning. 1974, Nixon pardoned William Kelly, who'd been convicted of murder for his role in the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. 
At Christmas in 1992, Poppy Bush pardoned all the high-level officials criminally implicated in the Reagan administration's Iran-Contra scandal. And sometimes pardons are to protest the perceived unjustness of the law under which somebody was convicted. So after prohibition ended, FDR pardoned a man convicted under the prohibition laws. JFK pardoned everyone who was convicted under a drug law that he didn't like. Presidents have occasionally issued pardons because they didn't think a real crime had been committed. But more often, people are pardoned because a real crime was committed. Because. The head of the National American Civil Liberties Union has just made a bit of a modest proposal uh, in the case of torture. In the case of torture, authorized by and carried out by the George W. Bush administration, torture documented in exquisite detail by the Senate Intelligence Committee today. In the case of torture, Anthony Romero, the executive director of the ACLU, now proposes that George W. Bush and other high-ranking officials of the Bush administration should be pardoned. They should be pardoned for crimes related to torture, authorizing and overseeing torture. And they should be pardoned because torture is a crime. And it ought to be seen as a crime. And as long as it is documented and admitted to openly in this country, but nobody gets prosecuted for it, well, that weakens the sense in which, realistically, it is illegal. If nobody's going to prosecute these guys for torture, then at least pardon them so America is on the record naming what they did as criminal. Joining us now for the interview is Anthony Romero, Executive Director of the ACLU. Mr. Romero, thank you very much for your time tonight. It's Hi, nice Rachel. to see you. It's great to see you. Great to be with you. Was that a fair, basic summary of the argument that you're making? Yeah, absolutely. But let's step back. And, let, and I want to join you in the sadness that I saw in your eyes and the way you spoke just before. What a terrible day for America. I mean, we see this report in, in 500 plus pages, spent millions of dollars, 6,000 pages long that detailing excruciating detail just how we betrayed our most fundamental values that who we are as Americans were betrayed by the highest levels of our government and carried out by low-level government officials and the idea that we have purposefully and consciously engaged in torture is truly something that should make every American shudder and the thing that I find so depressing now watching the news play out all day is just how these individuals who are involved in the torture programs are unrepentant. Mm. They continue to say, we did the right thing. It was moral. It was legal. It was effective. They have no sense of remorse, no sense of how much they've betrayed who we are as a people. And so Do it's with great I sadness that we, we're here today. It's, it's remarkable point. to me. I'm, I'm very sorry to interrupt you there, and yeah, I'm doing it sort of out of passion. I no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I have been feeling that exact same thing today, and the thing that I am very worried about is that we've gotten to a point now where we have named it, and we have attempted to shame it. As a yeah. way of deflecting the shame for it, we've actually made it more likely that as a country we're going to do this more. Absolutely. Because now there is this record of Absolutely. praise for torture and saying that it's wise. Absolutely. And our president is mumbling. Let's be very clear. When he says, it was torture in my mind, well, it's really, it's a torture in the legal books. If people, if, if crimes didn't just happen, it was almost like we talk about crimes, but we don't talk about criminals. The idea that there's no accountability for people who broke the law. Now, the president may very well decide it's not worth the political fallout. I happen to disagree with him. I prefer prosecutions. I said that to him when I, the only time I ever met the president in a small room, I said, please hunt one head, sir. Hunt it famously if you want to make sure this never happens again. He decided otherwise. He's the president. Now the question is, that if he's watching the, the clips, 
He cannot believe that he's closed the Pandora's box of torture. It's up for grabs again. Yeah. Whenever we have another terrorist attack, whenever we have another debate, whenever we have another Rick Perry in the White House or Governor Chris Christie, they're going to resurrect these arguments all over again because no one's been held accountable. No one's been charged with crimes. We have the Senate report that doesn't really point fingers at anyone specifically. And so lamentably, I've come to the point, well, if you're not going to prosecute them, label them as criminals and pardon them emblazon this big letter C on their chest, which they refuse to wear, but label them as criminals and tell them that, I pardon you, it's better for the country, we're going to move on. But what you did was wrong, unlawful, un-American, unhelpful, and never again to be repeated. Because if you repeat it again, the future perpetrators of torture and the future architects of torture will be held accountable. And this president cannot believe that he's finished the job. This Pandora's box is wide open, and the reason why it's wide open is because he refused to take the necessary steps to make this country grapple with the fact that it wasn't just a bad decision or a couple of rogue soldiers. It was unlawful, unconstitutional, illegal, barbaric practices of individuals who dare offend our conscience and tell us that they did it right by us. Come on, we know better. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. So when he took office, President Obama ended the detention and interrogation program. He ended extraordinary rendition. He replaced them with, uh, you know, killing by drone. But he made it clear at the very beginning of his administration, day two or three, that he was not going to investigate or prosecute any of the perpetrators, any of the people involved in these programs. We're going to look forward, not backward, he said. Everybody remembers that. Nonetheless, as I said, the Justice Department did open an investigation um, and found no nobody to, nobody to prosecute. It, it's a, a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, that a few, a few years ago, a State Department official was explaining to the Washington Post why it was so difficult to wipe out corruption in Afghanistan. And he said... Uh, they have over there, they have a culture of impunity, unquote. Well, guess what? We got one, too. Nobody's going to 
probably go to jail for violating either the domestic law against torture or the international convention against torture, a treaty which we signed and ratified and which makes no exceptions for exceptional circumstances like war or terrorism or terrorist attacks and makes no exceptions as to who can or cannot be tortured legally. So, as I say, no one's no one's going to do a perp walk. But at least we have the satisfaction of knowing that in President Obama's phrase from earlier this year, we tortured some folks. And that's really accountability enough, don't you think? There's a right way and a wrong way And very little in between There's a good way and a bad way You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, prosecute torture. I know it seems like this topic wouldn't even require activism. Why would we ever need to demand that the Department of Justice actually seek justice? Apparently, for all the reasons covered in today's show and all of the reasons you already knew and all of the reasons that don't even surprise us now that more than a decade has gone by since our government lied to our faces to obtain support for an illegal war. We knew about the torture, but now the government has spent three years and $40 million finally proving the thing we knew, that the CIA understood torture isn't an effective information gathering tool, but encouraged its use anyways. Murtaza Hussein at The Intercept and Marcy Wheeler at EmptyWheel.com do solid breakdowns of the report, how it came about, the worst things in it, and other details to stoke your rage should you be into digging deeper. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. People were, were beaten. There was mock executions. Sheer malignant evil. Just because you can get around the rule technically doesn't mean it's morally right. It is so contrary to Geneva Convention and what the American military is trained to do. The ACLU told the following to The Intercept, quote, Even though we previously knew many details about the torture program, the brutality this landmark report documents is breathtaking. The release of this report is a call to action for the Justice Department, Congress, and the White House. We cannot make a clean break from this nation's history of state-sanctioned torture without accountability for the terrible human rights violations committed in our name, unquote. And I couldn't agree more. Visit ACLU.org and click on the impossible Possible to miss no free pass for torture action to sign the petition asking Attorney General Eric Holder to appoint a special prosecutor, as is not only his right, but his duty as the highest law enforcement official in the country. As the petition states, accountability for torture today is critical for stopping it tomorrow, and I don't know about you, but I'd rather not have any of this happen again. I told the prosecution team that I'd wanted us to do this in a way that our grandkids could look back at Guantanamo the way that we look back at Nuremberg. Now, as it is the holidays, we're bringing you a positive torture-related action also via the ACLU. Not everyone who was commanded to use the enhanced interrogation techniques followed those orders. I truly believe a lot more interrogators would have spoken out against torture had it not been for the risk of losing their security clearance, which meant they would lose their job. I had a lot of uh, friends and colleagues in the intelligence community, FBI, 
telling me maybe you should say to the American people the truth about what happened. There were dissenters among our public officials and our military rank and file. Some prosecutors resigned rather than bring cases founded on coerced evidence. Others, like the Navy's general counsel, Alberto J. Mora, stayed and led an effort to end the practices which he argued to his superiors were ineffective and unlawful. Still others endured ridicule and bullying by their bosses for daring to question what they were told was their job and patriotic duty. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Vandeveld was placed under house arrest for refusing to participate in torture. I filed a report with the Department of Defense, a law of armed conflict violation report. It was my obligation to try to learn more about it and put it to a stop. I felt isolated in my fight to report the people who were conducting the torture abuse. It was probably one of the most difficult decisions I made in my life because I love the FBI. I love what I used to do. At that point, I didn't know, you know, were they going to court-martial me? And in fact, I was placed under house arrest. I said, look, we're not going to use you know, any evidence that was obtained by torture or any of the other enhanced techniques that any of you feel went too far. Please sign the ACLU petition titled honor those who said no to torture, asking the president to, quote, formally honor the members of the military, the CIA, and other public servants who, when our nation went off course, stayed true to our most fundamental ideals, unquote. What I wanted to focus on was to tell people they've been presented this false choice. It's not worth losing yourself for this. Part of being a leader is standing up and trying to lead for your team, so I'd like to think that's what I tried to do. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If upholding international human rights laws matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word via social media so that others in your network can also demand that the president and the Department of Justice take action. First and foremost, we are a nation built on the rule of law. We're a nation of laws, and we must enforce our laws. We are also a nation of laws. America is a nation of laws, which means I, as the president, am obligated to enforce the law. We're a nation of law, a nation of civil right. When praising our country, presidents love to invoke that we are a nation of laws. It's a phrase that harkens back to a famous quote attributed to John Adams, which actually appears in the Massachusetts State's Constitution that he helped write and refers to a government of laws and not of men. But being a nation of laws can't simply mean a nation that has statutes and courts and lawyers and legal process because, well, basically every country has that. I mean, for example, in Egypt, the current military regime just oversaw the reversal of former dictator Hosni Mubarak's conviction for the murder of hundreds of protesters in Tahrir Square. 
and in proceedings that were all legal in some narrow technical sense, but were widely viewed by international human rights observers as an outright sham. And it's safe to say no Americans are rushing to call Egypt a model for the rule of law, or Egypt in its current iteration a nation of laws. So a nation of laws can't simply be a nation with laws. It must enforce those laws without fear or favor. Apply them equally to the powerful and the powerless alike, to the connected and the unconnected. A nation of laws is one where the law acts as a great equalizer by restraining those in power and ensuring that even the most marginalized member of society can count on getting a fair shake in court. Equal justice under law, as it reads above the Supreme Court. And I gotta say, for a long time, I have believed the U.S. is such a place. Sure, it's flawed, and sure, there are places where justice is miscarried, but fundamentally, I have long thought the U.S. really is a nation of laws. I have to say, it is getting harder and harder to hold on to that faith. I mean, first, we all watched Wall Street engage in massive and widespread fraud and predation, and virtually no one went to jail for doing the kinds of things that, say, would almost certainly get you locked up if you were just a guy from the neighborhood. And then last week, we all watched as a police officer who put a man in a chokehold, who died shortly after, and whose death was later ruled a homicide, walked away from a grand jury with no indictment, no charges whatsoever. We don't even know if he's going to be fired. And today, well, today we have 600 pages documenting the torture carried out and authorized by a wide variety of government officials, up to and including the president and vice president, documenting activities that are on their face a violation of Section 2340 of the U.S. Criminal Code, which outlaws torture, specifically mentioning acts committed outside the U.S. by a U.S. national. And no one, no one will face prosecution for those crimes. I mean, think about this. Michael Vick did more time for what he did to dogs than anyone will face for what they did to human beings, many of whom, we learned today, shouldn't even have been in custody in the first place. The law and its application always depends on context and circumstances and intent. Any lawyer will tell you that. But it cannot depend on whether the person committing an act is powerful or powerless. I mean, can you sell people worthless trash that you know is worthless without telling them? Well, it depends on who's doing it. Can you choke a man to death? It depends on who's doing it. Can you anally rape someone with a tube, threaten to kill his children, and threaten to rape his mother, all without legal consequence. Well, you see, it depends on who's doing it. I mean, think about this. One of the authors of the legal justification for this entire sick chapter currently serves as a federal judge rendering opinions and interpretations on the law. Does that sound like a nation of laws? Or does it sound more like the cynical machinations of one of those regimes we so eagerly and rightly condemn? If you want to defend torture, by all means, go ahead. But please, I am begging you, spare me any sermons about the law ever, ever again.
My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. During the Cold War, and, and, and there's a quote, I wish I'd thought about it. And my brain hadn't been so mushy, I would have pulled it out. We've used it before. There, there was a great quote. I, I don't remember if it was to Truman or very early Eisenhower administration, but one of the bigwigs over in the national security uh, uh, apparatus had said to the president that, you know, we're facing an implacable enemy with the Soviet Union. You know, they will stop at nothing, essentially. And he was saying, in order to combat a foe like that, we're going to have to be willing to jettison our ideals, you know, our standards, our um, idealism, uh, enough to compete with these people because otherwise they'll beat us. They'll use every dirty trick that we will deliberately not do because it conflicts with American values to do that, but they'll do it. So the idea was we had to be willing to do horrible stuff that might be un-American in nature because of the threat we faced. And let's be honest, ladies and gentlemen, and you need to keep this in mind. I always try to keep it in mind. You, no matter how much they try to scare you about these terrorists, they are nothing, nothing compared to the Soviet threat we dealt with in the Cold War. And you need to understand that because when they start talking about things that we wouldn't have even done during the Cold War, that would have seemed too much back then to deal with a threat that could literally destroy life on Earth, remember that the threat we're facing now is a gnat compared to that, okay? Even in the worst-case scenario. Nonetheless, what we started doing as as a country was was and this is where I think we went off the rails. This is where when I was a protester uh, in college, I mean, these are the kind of things I protested. Was where our country did things that violated their values, their stated values. We violated the American marketing slogans, and some of us think that that's wrong. When we cozy up to governments that are not only not supported by their people but treat their people the way really bad governments treat their people. I don't want to say Nazis because you play with Godwin's law, but you know what I'm saying. When, when, when you're the government of El Salvador or a lot of other Central American or Middle Eastern governments who tortures and do, does terrible things to their own people, and their own people would get rid of them if they could, but you stay in power in part because the United States supports you because you're helping us in this Cold War, this existential threat. Those are the kind of things which, by the way, Plant the seeds for long-term problems because people start hating you. And they hate you because your activities are conflicting with your marketing slogans, too. There's a lot of people in the Middle East now that are living with a whole lot of extremism who got angry initially at us in the United States because we would talk one thing and do another. And they had to live under regimes that only stayed in power because we helped them. And when they stayed in power, they did things like, oh, I don't know, roast people who were in jail over the wire frames of cots. That was the Shah of Iran. We overthrew the uh, elected Iranian government that came to power before him. And then in 79, they overthrew the Shah. And who do you think they were angry with? That's right. The people that did something that clashed so much with their 
you know, ideals, right? Realism had trumped idealism and we're still paying the price for that. In my opinion, it's why when you get something out of balance between your realism and idealism scale, it can come back to haunt you. The realists love to point out the bad things that can happen if you're not realistic enough, but believe it or not, the idealistic stuff solves problems too. If you'd been more idealistic when Mohammed Mosaddegh comes to power in Iran in the 1950s, treated it more like, well, you know, this is democracy in action and, and that's what America supports and whatnot, you might not have any of this stuff relating to the Iranian Revolution in 79 or anything now. Now, that's 2020 hindsight kind of stuff, but I would argue that the more we err on the side of realism, on the realism-idealism scale, the less like America we become and the more the rest of the world sees through the marketing slogans. When you can say, you're a great American and this country is the shining city on the hill and we're the exceptional nation and all these kinds of things, and we should be torturing and it's a good thing, I'm sorry, there's a lot of people that are going to see that as hypocritical if you're still buying the marketing. If the marketing stuff is anything more than just for show, right? There's an old uh, shirt that people wear. It's a real patriotic shirt and it shows the American flag and the line underneath says, these colors don't run. Yes, they do. They run if they get scared enough and that's what happens when you don't live up to your ideals you open yourself up to charges of moral cowardness and that's what the torture thing is where do you get people to do this where do you find the great americans who will do the torturing for you and for those of you by the way who have no problem with the uh, dan or just have to be realist this terrorism threat is like nothing we've ever faced before i'll hit you in a different place do you know we paid two guys apparently two guys two psychologist type guys eighty million dollars for their help in this um, torture situation. Did I get that right, Ben? Was it, it was two guys, right? Two psychologists. What did they do? Split it down the middle? Did we give them stock options? I mean, okay, there's your government right there. Can't even run a torture operation without going over budget and and, and, <laughs> and, and giving away to the special interest. Who are the special interest in, uh, in a torture thing, Ben? Is it the people that make, like, car batteries or chains or uh, waterboarding equipment? Here's the thing, folks. One of two things is going to happen 30, 40, 50 years from now over, over all this torturing. And I don't know which one's worse. Either we're going to look back on this era, this torturing that so many in our government right now and our CIA are defending, you know, and understand the way they're defending it. You know, their lines were crossed, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, America was kept safe or these are real patriotic people or whatever you want to say. Either we're going to look back on the torturing from the early 2000s as one of the worst periods, one of the blackest marks in American history, or we're not. And if we don't look at it as one of the blackest marks in American history, that that's almost worse. Brother, this is Vimeer Adiz, and I'm from Western New York. I have uh, had the opportunity to listen to episode 881 and 882, and um, you ended 882 with a very interesting clip, which had to do with conscious and unconscious biases. And I think that that's a very, very important concept because a lot of people like to think about racism as a very unconscious thing, and therefore. For some people, that's a means of saying, well, you really can't do anything about it because everybody is in some way racist. I don't buy that. 
I don't buy it. And I actually think we do ourselves an incredible disservice by continuously perpetuating that notion. Yes, we all have biases, but why do we have those biases? We have those biases because our culture promotes them. Because we don't try to root out those biases, guess what? They persist. If you want a great example of this, how we rooted out a bias and got rid of it, all you have to do is go back 50 years. Back 50 years ago, it was okay to beat a black man if he was trying to vote. Back then, it was considered a correct thing to do. And everybody did it, supposedly. And yet we said, no, no, we're going to get past that. We're not going to do that anymore. Stop that. And we rooted it out. It took a decade and a half, but we were able to root it out. These deeper concepts of racism, we can indeed root out. We just need to do it. Everybody talks about, oh, let's start a discussion about race. Let's start a national dialogue about race. I don't want to start a national dialogue about race. I want to end a national dialogue on race. But if you do that, then you have to tackle everything that has to do with racism. And people don't want that because that is, uh, that, that, that puts our whole culture. And when I say ours, I really don't mean mine because I'm a black male and I don't have a culture here in America. I only have white culture. My culture is supposed to be jazz and gospel and a lot of that other stuff, but you know, we don't, we don't get to see a lot of that on display. So I really just have white culture. If we want to stop racism, we have to tackle all of that. Now, I would suggest to everybody who is hearing this to go out and get two books, one of which I'm actually just starting to read, but it is an incredible read, and everybody really should have it. It's called Yurugu, Y-U-R-U-G-U, and it is by Marimba Ani. Just type in Yurugu, or Yurugu on Amazon. It'll come right up. And the second one is, if you don't already have it, The Conservative Mind. It's an incredible read, something that would really help you understand with Irugu why we're in the mess we're in uh, with race. Anyway, thank you very much, Jay, and um, peace. Good morning. This is Vicki from Oregon calling to respond to Wade's comments on renewable energy recently. He blamed inaction on renewable energy on the government, but I found it interesting that his comments were aired at the end of your show on media, including a Jimmy Dore segment entitled, Who Controls the News? I've often told my liberal friends from the coasts and big cities that in order to understand why things are the way they are, One needs to drive across the country with the radio on, and I mean no cheating with Sirius or podcasts. The so-called heartland lives in media darkness. In some places, you can't even get NPR, which is obviously moving toward the right at lightning speed. Wade believes that Bill Moyers is spot on. On Bill Moyers' October 31st show with Bernie Sanders, Moyers asked, How do you reach those people? Sanders responded, You're asking exactly the right question. I agree. Thanks for listening. Bye.
Hey, Jay, it's Chris from Colorado Springs. Um, a couple of things. First, I wanted to say I the last bonus episode you put out was hilarious, and I just want to highly recommend anybody out there who's not a member, you should become a member because, Jay, you had me cracking up about the poor oppressed oppressors. Uh, that was hilarious. Uh, on another note, your climate episode that I heard today, you know, I heard those clips of all those politicians talking about China and India and China and India, and, man, I just thought about kids on a playground. Like, I'm not going to stop throwing rocks at Susie until Billy stops throwing rocks at Susie. And it just got me thinking that this idea of American exceptionalism is such bullshit because we only use it when it suits our purposes. Like, why on earth would we do something good for our planet unless the other people are doing it as well? And I tried to think, what, what other political thing can this be applied to? And it's like, well, terrorism. If we follow their argument about, you know, the biggest polluters out there, if they're not doing anything, what, well, our actions are meaningless. Well, let's think about the biggest creators of terrorism out there. What's Syria really doing to stop terrorism on its own? What's Pakistan or Afghanistan really doing to prevent terrorism on their own or, or sub-Saharan Africa for that matter? Well, they're not doing much. So by that reasoning, anything that we do is just pointless. You know, why should we take the lead when the biggest terrorism-producing countries out there aren't doing anything to fight terrorism? Their argument is such bullshit, and I don't understand why I don't hear more progressives who, who have a position of power or have a pulpit call them out on this illogical, immature, childish fucking reasoning. It, it really just... Maybe it was the way the clip just had a mesh together. It just grated on my ears like I was sitting in a kindergarten classroom hearing these bullshit excuses for why we can't take what Republicans like to tout so much personal responsibility for our own fucking actions and maybe take the lead on an issue that's going to literally be the thing that my son has to deal with for the rest of his life. If we don't get this climate thing in check, my kid's going to be that generation that's going to be fighting over water instead of terrorism. So... Anyway, I just wanted to throw my two cents in, man. Uh, take care. Hope all's well. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I, I was definitely glad to hear from uh, Chris from Colorado Springs just mentioning very kindly that he enjoyed the most recent members-only bonus content. I, I think that that was a really important episode. You know, I, I, I talked about uh, an, an oppressed group that I think gets very little recognition or representation. And I mean, I'm sure you know, we talk about oppression and privilege and all of those sorts of things on the show a lot. And, you know, you've got your race hustlers working on behalf of ethnic minorities, and then we've got the, the man-hating feminazis working for gender equality. And you get this sense, like, every oppressed minority has their spokesmen and women. But I found this group that you've probably never thought twice about, much less considered the difficulties of their lives. And so in this most recent bonus segment, I take it upon myself to recognize and advocate for these poor, pitiable souls and, you know, in the process, gain a bit of unexpected empathy, actually, from a true story pulled right out of my own life experience. And so you can hear all of that on a very special 
Best of the Left members show. You can sign up for a membership at the website. You'll get instant access. And a quick reminder that if you're already a member but you don't know how to access the bonus content, just drop me a note and I will be happy to help you out. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're doing